Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. A few years ago, journalist Hugh Remington looked up into the cold night sky of Canberra and realised perhaps for the first time he had a chance of dying from old age. Having spent more than 30 years as a foreign correspondent in many of the world's worst conflicts, a comfortable life free from bombs, bullets and famines had never quite seemed possible. Hugh has detailed this extraordinary life of global reporting in his autobiography, Minefields, A Life in the News Game. While it reads as a story of high adventure and calculated risks, it's also a deeply personal tale of endless curiosity and enormous empathy for the resilience and courage of the people he's encountered during what can only be considered the most extreme natural and man-made events of modern history. Hello, Hugh. Hello, James. Thank you for joining me. Great to be with you. Now, this is an epic story. Did you ever feel like you've lived a particularly epic life? It's funny because uh, what I feel I've lived is a kind of a life of accumulation where uh, just, what's that old line? Life is just one damn thing after another. It's just that the damn things that I tended to be doing as a foreign correspondent tended to be the next big thing. So, uh, uh, you know, so there's, it's not about one thing. It's about learning your way through the world, essentially, in the time that we've lived it. So uh, by going to, for a while there, everything that could possibly go wrong. <laughs> and generally it was when things went wrong, I'd turn up to it. It's, it is, as I said, it's a story of enormous empathy for what you have seen and experienced, as much as it is a bit of daring do and boys own adventure at times. I wanted to start with, with your father, perhaps, mm. who, who grew up in the island of Jersey. And during that period of time, 1940, 1945, there was a period of German occupation. How did that affect his view of the sense of community or a need for community? Yes, my dad was uh, born to quite a privileged life. His father was, uh, he never saw his father do a stroke of work. Uh, he, and the old boy died when my dad was about nine. He, he, he basically cognacked himself up, but he was, a, he was a man of significant wealth at that time. And that was the privilege which my father had been brought up in. But then the war came and the Nazis invaded and occupied Jersey and they stayed there for the whole length of the war. So even after the D-Day landings, uh, the war kind of bypassed Jersey and the Germans kept in control of it. And what my father, as, a, as a, a lad who was 11 or 12 years old when the Germans moved in and was about 17 when they moved out, uh, in those formative adolescent years, he looked around and he realised that it is community, it is people looking out for each other. Uh, it is the sacrifices that you make for other people to make sure that they can get along okay. Um, those are the things which build strength uh, in not only a community, but also internal strength. It's what builds the bonds between people. So dad came out of that with a very strong sense uh, that it's what you what you give to others is, is really what defines you and also what use that you deliver to the world. So although he was born to great privilege, he, he's, he, he, he was very influential in the sense of uh, treating everybody as you found them. And... Um, and with with compassion and fellow feeling for the people around you. And that was a consequence of his wartime experiences, but it was very useful to me as well as a journalist. How do you think that informed your view of the world before you became a journalist? 
I think because I started so young, I was 17 when I got my first job as a cadet reporter, and I really knew nothing very much about the world. So I think these things, this is the thing about raising children, if you've got children of your own, is that um, you, you get you get trained by your parents for good and ill in ways that you don't notice until later on, and then you realize, in fact, you're utterly steeped in what they've put into you, uh, again, for good or ill. But um, I think that the... the I think if there were elements of it, one is uh, curiosity, having a curiosity about other people and a curiosity about things. That's enormously important. And the other one is because I was born in Sri Lanka, as it turns out, and spent my early years there and my parents met there and dad lived there for 20 years, um, we had uh, Sri Lankan friends, family friends and so on. And... Um, the sense of uh, racism as being an intolerable um, error, I think, an affront in a moral terms, that was very deeply steeped in from a very young age. And I think, I don't think you can travel the world as a racist, except if you want to take your filthy bubble with you as you go. You can't travel without learning about people in their own environments and having a generous view of them in their own environments. And so I, I think all of that combined to make me uh, well-placed for travel and well-placed for, for journalism, particularly the foreign corresponding kind of work. Yes, it's interesting. We will get to some of these extraordinary places you've travelled to, but also the, the understanding of how racism can truly destroy a nation as well. Um, heading back into Sri Lanka, though, where you were born, ginger-haired, freckled-faced <laughs> kid in Sri Lanka, which is not what's expected until we read the book itself. But I was fascinated by the fact that you were quite disappointed to find out that your nanny wasn't your mother. Yes, it's funny because my parents lived, a, again, they lived a privileged life in Sri Lanka. Dad, dad ran tea estates, and by the time I came along, he w he'd become quite senior in them. So we lived a, a life. It wasn't a well-paid job particularly, but it was, uh, it was one where you – there were the houses supplied and all the vehicles supplied and also a lot of staff. So I was effectively raised, as was my older and my younger brother, who were, who were both born in Sri Lanka, by by nannies, but partic one in particular who we adored called Bridget. And uh, I do remember a moment of astonishment uh, when I learned that she wasn't my mother and that my mother was this ethereal, blonde-haired creature in the big house and uh and feeling at the same sense a sense of of both the disturbance of realizing that my beloved nanny wasn't actually my mother but also this weird sense of of mixed horror and pride that this almost goddess-like figure in the big house was somehow connected to me and that was my mum <laughs> What a wonderful way to refer to your mother, though. <laughs> well, she was because she had blonde hair that went right. You know, she was a very beautiful woman, and uh, and she lived where she could a very social life in Sri Lanka. There's a lot of time up in the hills and all the rest of it. And uh, I think it was a glorious time for her as a young mum to have a lot of the care taken care of. And and uh, yeah, she was an ethereal presence. It seemed. It all came down to earth when we moved to New Zealand. There were no bloody servants there, I can tell you, and, uh, and she was left with four kids to raise. Well, that's the thing. You didn't get to spend much of your youth in Sri Lanka. You were quickly on a boat, moving off and heading towards New Zealand. You got to stop by Taronga Zoo in yes. Sydney. 
<laughs> and you didn't return to Australia for many, many years. But while you're in New Zealand, you did go to a your first school was with the Sisters of Mercy, oh, which yeah. is which, for lack of a better term, is a bit of a misnomer, really, considering how they treated you. What were, you mentioned there are three things that they gave you in, in when you left that school. One of them was a, a good understanding of arithmetic, and yes. two others, which is one relates to um, self-appointed power, which you've always rebelled against. Yeah, look, this was the last gasp, really, of um, old-style Catholicism because Vatican II had kind of happened, was in the process of happening, and the church, the Catholic Church, was reforming. Um, and, and really what I witnessed, kids of my age who went to those Catholic schools run by nuns were witnessing, was actually the end of a millennial-long tradition of convents and the monastic life um, because it doesn't exist anymore. And it was, we didn't realize at the time, but it was really on its last legs at that time. So what they gave me was, um, there was an enormous amount of corporal punishment, enormous amount of beating of small children, five, six, seven-year-old children, um, and constant um, stern lectures about our levels of sin. And this was coming from women in the full habit of the Sisters of Mercy. They were quite severe, forbidding women in in their black costumes and so on and um and of course we were being well trained to see them as being um holy figures sacred figures who had a particular closeness to god the all-powerful god and um and i do remember there was one particular incident where it wasn't didn't have to do with me it was where they they took out a very mild timid boy and thrashed him apparently for yawning in class, when it's probably doubtful that he even yawned in class, leaving aside the, the degree of the punishment relative to the crime. And, and at that point, I, I did have a, a moment where I, I thought, this is actually, this is profoundly bullshit. Uh, this is, you know, I don't know what this God thing is or this notion that these people are somehow uh, holders of some esoteric and higher plane of spiritual existence. I thought, this is just crap. This is... Uh, this is a woman thrashing the shit out of a six-year-old kid. And it really did. You just you turned away completely from religion at that point. Well, I did, and, and from the school. I arced up quite a lot, and, and I'm enormously grateful to say that my parents in the school negotiated that I should get out of there pretty soon because I think I was a disruptive influence to others. And, and, I, and I think even then in that half-formed state of it, I, I saw no moral value in the authority that they placed over us. I saw them as being, in my own sense, I wouldn't have used these words at the time, but I saw it as being profoundly corrupt. And I would say even evil, uh, not, a, not a word I'd use, but, but hypocritical in, in the deeper sense that this is a place where we were being taught about God's love for us and all this sort of stuff, while these agents of God's love would just, just freely thrash small children for virtually nothing. And... Um, and I do think that a lot of what I've done, a lot of my instincts that, that hold to this day, uh, I despise people who abuse power. And, and particularly where, you know, it's venal enough if all they're doing it is to make some money for themselves, corrupted in that way, but where they make life hard for others, and it doesn't matter whether it's happening in Australia or happening overseas, I just have a, you know, I'm a fairly mild-mannered guy, but this is where I have a source of justice, I suppose, and it may well have been taught to me by those nuns, so I can't say they didn't give me anything. Your luck really came to fall, though, when you moved from a career in rat poo yes. 
into <laughs> becoming a journalist. It's true. Which was so we've sort of jumped ahead, but in, in New Zealand that you had the opportunity to end up meeting with this larger than life figure who said, Why do you want to be a journalist? Mm. Just just tell me about that, because you had no idea that you were going to yeah, be so a journalist. Yeah, so I was working I was working in an animal laboratory attached to a teaching hospital, cleaning rat poo out of cages. Um, that was the job I had. I, I was very unmotivated. I my I I I was quite a drunken teenager and I had, I think, in retrospect, some probably some significant mental health issues as an adolescent. So there I was going nowhere. But I did come into the orbit of this bloke who was a radio news director on the local radio station. And he, on a misunderstanding, someone was, had applied for a job at his radio station. And I turned, turned up. I, he, he thought it was me. So he started interviewing me for this job. He said, come in here, sit down. And I went and sat down. I had no idea. He was a big bluff guy. He was the kind of guy if he says, come in here and sit down, you went and sat down, you're 17 years old. And then he started saying, why do you want to be a journalist? And I looked and went, well, hang on a minute. Um, you know, it's, the thought had never entered my head. But I did recognize that it was some kind of a job interview or something. So I, I started to answer him back and give answers as if I was applying for a job. Uh, I was working as a rat poo technician at the time. So, you know, every, everyone was up from there. And, uh, and he wound up hiring me, which is just a bizarre thing. If there was a moment of luck, pivotal moment of luck in my life, that was it. <laughs> but the money was worse. The money was worse than rat poo. That's right. <laughs> so yes, a cadet reporter gets paid less than uh, a rat poo cleaner and probably rightly so. <laughs> Dear. You, you had an opportunity to work within local radio and, and one of the major stations, um, FM stations at the time in New Zealand. You eventually made the move to, to Australia. Mm. And this began what you've termed the longest love affair of your life. Yeah. What was it that made you fall in love with Australia? Yeah, so I'd arrived in Perth. Um, I was 22 years old. My brother was living there and he'd sent me this little um, newspaper clipping that they were looking for someone. And... Um, and I'd rung them up and I'd got this job. I'd turn up at this radio station and it was, it was, it was a nothing radio station really. It had a newsroom staff of about seven people. And the minute I turned up, I got given a riotous hard time by my new colleagues. All this kind of, ah, oh, Jesus, bloody Kiwis, oh, all this sort of stuff going on. And I thought they were bloody funny. Um, and they, you know, they gave me a hard time. They said, yeah, bloody Kiwis over here, bloody rooting our women and taking our jobs. And rah. and there was a big shearing dispute at the moment, and they brought in some scab labor from New Zealand to deal with it. He goes, oh, you're shearing our sheep. And I I actually loved that. I loved it. And and literally just on about the Thursday of my first week, um, one of these older guys is about 40, is like twice my age effectively, said, oh, look, you know, the missus and me were having a barbecue this weekend. Do you want to come around? And, and I thought, well, sure, that'd be great. So I go around to his house with my girlfriend at the time and, um, uh, and the entire newsroom staff and their partners had turned up. And I thought it was such a generous thing to do with an absolute stranger. I th possibly I'd pass some test by <laughs> laughing at their banter. And, uh, I really, found there the Australian sense of humour, the fundamental underlying generosity and uh, friendliness. Uh, friendliness is an underused phrase, underused virtue, underrecognised virtue, and I thought that that was magnificent and I, and I really loved Australia for my first week in there. I have to say I was a white guy who spoke English. Maybe it was easier. Um, and I understood the culture more or less because I only came from across the ditch. 
Um, well, I was going to say, to be fair about this speaking English thing, you were you were speaking <laughs> with an accent. <laughs> That's right. I was speaking the uh, yes, the Tasman dialect. <laughs> How long did it take you to lose that? Well, I worked as hard as I could to get rid of it because I, had to, I was working for a radio station. Every radio station in Perth starts with the number six. <laughs> and, of course, every Kiwi goes sooks. And uh, so I had to say, every time I read a news bulletin, I had to say, in fact, I read the afternoon one, which finished up with me having to say, it's six past six, six KY. <laughs> and when I got there, I was tearing my mouth apart to kind of go six past six, past six, or something, whatever I thought Australian sounded like. You were just being, this is an absolute wind-up. It is, it is, it is, yeah. (laughs) It is funny. The endless Kiwi, what is it? There's the old line, I think it's Freud, the narcissism of minor difference, that the differences between Australians and New Zealanders are pretty slight, but uh, we do try to make the most of it. You then move eventually to Melbourne and you take up a job that gives you the opportunity to start travelling as a, yeah. essentially as a foreign, foreign correspondent. And the first place you go is 1987. You head off to Fiji for the Fiji coup. And this is really the first time you have the muzzle of a gun pointed at the back of your head. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, in a sense, quite shocking at that moment. Um, this was a coup. There was a, um, a Fijian army officer had taken over parliament with a whole bunch of balaclavaed soldiers. It was a, it was an old style, good old fashioned coup. They took away the elected representatives. They objected to the fact that there were, um, a, a large preponderance of Fiji Indian MPs. And, uh, so this was a, essentially it was in some ways a racist coup. You could read it as being a, uh, an indigenous versus a uh, you know non-indigenous rebellion because they were trying to resist as they perceived it the increasing influence of Fiji Indians in the in the economy and the politics and so there we were everyone thought of Fiji as being a holiday island and that this was unthinkable but it wasn't quite a holiday coup I can tell you as people sometimes reported at the times so people who weren't there um, and I was trying to file a story they started to shut down the phone systems when you're trying to file stories. And so I I went off to try to find a public phone. It was in the middle of the night. And in the course of this, I was uh, uh, bailed up essentially by a patrol that I think had been tipped off I was there. Well, uh, well, to be fair, we should explain that to actually send a message down a phone, you had to essentially take the phone apart. Yes, you did in those days. So so what you do is there were all handsets had screw sort of screw ends to them. And so you'd unscrew the handset and then put crocodile clips across the uh, the terminals, and then plug that into your tape recorder, and you would get close to studio quality sound. You didn't have that crackle down the phone line. So when the soldiers romped in, they see me crouched down over a, you know, with a sort of little black unit of some kind, which is a tape recorder, a uh, cassette recorder in those days, and the, um, uh, but this phone with wires hanging off it. And uh, I think they thought I was up to some nefarious spy activity or something. And this vast Fijian hand just gripped me between my shoulder blades and just hauled me to my feet. Um, And, you know, there was a, you know, with a gun, the first thing I actually noticed was the gun at my eye level just before he he, he pulled me up. What what happens then in your own mind? Does everything slow down? Well, I think, yes, it does to a certain degree. You get a big jolt of adrenaline, I can tell you. But the other thing which happens is that you're thinking all the rules are broken. Like a week ago, no one thought that in Fiji there'd be masked gunmen in the parliament. Um, the, the, the politicians themselves thought they were going to be killed. They, they threw themselves on the ground and others threw themselves on top. No one knows what the rules are once all the rules have been broken by men with guns. So as I was being marched outside into the night, feeling very alone, um, 
I knew that, you know, not long before in East Timor, soldiers had, been, uh, sorry, journalists had been killed, uh, essentially by military or militias acting in their own interests. There were journalists being killed in Southeast Asia. They've been killed in Indonesia. They've been killed in Central America. Yeah, so you just, five of seventy. Absolutely, 70. yeah. And these things were in the back of your mind. You're thinking this can't can't be real, would they? Would they? But you don't know. And in fact, there were, you know, uh, um, Peter Cave was a great ABC foreign correspondent and Red Harrison, who was a BBC man, were lined up twice uh, for mock executions during the course of that coup when they thought very, there was a very real prospect they were about to get executed by firing squad. So, you know, the, and there were other elements that came up. I got arrested again and, and there were all kinds of threats and things. So it was a bit of a quick... Uh, initial insight into um, what happens when people with guns basically make the rules. This seemed to be a bit of the, the making of you in many ways. This was really your first opportunity to be a foreign correspondent. And you, had the, you also met a seasoned foreign correspondent from Time magazine, a particular photographer. What impact yeah. did he have upon you? Well, I mean, he, I think he impressed... Um, He'd be surprised to hear this all these years later on because for him this was a very minor thing, small coup in South Pacific, not very interesting, move on as quickly as you can. But he, he left a big impression on myself and the other, a couple of the other young journos there. We talked about him because we realised that here was a guy who did nothing but go from coup to disaster to war to whatever. And, and we were essentially suburban. I was a suburban Melbourne reporter who's found myself in this situation. And the thought that there was a world in which people did nothing but this work, that this was their careers, was... Uh, on its own way, quite breathtakingly exciting and frightening. Because if you decided that that was what you were going to pursue, you knew that these levels of danger were going to be your life. And, um, and the first thing I did when I got back was I reviewed how I'd reacted under those conditions. And I thought I did some things pretty well and I thought I did other things not so well. And I thought I need to re, I need to find a way to to train that part of myself that's going to work well under extreme stress. And they, they, I signed up for an outward bound course and went off and spent a month in the, in the mountains, just hiking with 12 other people. There were tough courses. Five people on my, out of my 12 were hospitalized off the course with a variety of injuries and other sorts of things. They, they really did work you hard in those days. And, um, but it did train me and help to, to give me a little bit of the mental strength. Uh, that I that I needed that and rock climbing and a bit of mountain climbing that I did later on was all part really of the training I was putting myself through, so I'd be ready for the right job. What did you think you needed to be mentally fit? Because I mean, you you've spoken very briefly. You you had a, a rough teen period where you were essentially clinically depressed, and then you came out of that. And this seemed to almost fortify you and gave you greater purpose. So what was it mentally you wanted to test? It's funny that someone quoted back to me a Hemingway line that, that you become strong in the broken places. And I did have, a, I did have in my middle teens, I, I, was, I was profoundly depressed actually and uh, drinking heavily uh, and furtively and, uh, and suicidal. It was a reality of that experience. And I had concerns about my mental um, just my entire mental capacity, uh, you know, it's, it, that was a tough time. So, so what I was doing was essentially a bit like the army does, where you break down. I, I was, I was seeking out the things that would break me down, so that I could strengthen back up again. And um, so, a lot of that is about 
managing your fear. It's about how you strengthen yourself against uh, great fatigue, uh, physical exhaustion, and, the, and always the purpose being that you must be able to make the right decisions regardless of the stresses. Ultimately, it's about your capacity for judgment and decision-making because if you're making the wrong decisions when things are going tits up, you're going to go very quickly into a bad place. So you need to be able to, under great stress, still have a capacity to make the right decisions. And that's what I was trying to train in myself. If this was perhaps the second step towards building the foreign correspondent that you became, I'd suggest to you maybe that the next step and the final step was when you went back to New Zealand to cover the Aramoana massacre, which mm. was the, the, the largest gun, well, largest shooting, I should say, in yeah. New Zealand's history. It was. What impact did that have on you? Well, this was, a, it was very much almost like a, a, a a, a, a precursor, a sort of a, a presage, the Port Arthur massacre. They, they had quite s- strong similarities. There was one loner who had, who had access to guns that was in a tiny little hamlet at the back end of the South Island of New Zealand, rather like Port Arthur was in Tasmania. And uh, there's a guy there, David Gray was his name, and he, he there was an argument about a dog was a trigger for it, and he, and he suddenly starts blazing away. In fact, he didn't just do that. He set fire to a house with a couple of kids inside it as well and he and he shot he shot small children on tricycles and so on and and that was the going through that place just moments after they'd shot him the police took us through when they've still got sort of arterial blood sprays from small children on the you know tricycles left on the side of the road it, the realization of the ab- absolute uh finality of um these murderous acts and i think at the time i was hoping to have children with my then wife and and it did that did knock me back because i was ready for hard hardship i was preparing myself for enduring tough conditions cold hunger lack of sleep trying to make right decisions trying to continue fighting i was i was that those sorts of preparations i had well in train but but i was really blindsided by the by the business of confronting what it is when when young children are just blown away by for no purpose whatsoever, and and that was that was a, that was another piece I had to go back and realise that um, it was a profound uh, challenge to your sense of the world and purpose, and and you have to realise that if you're going to go and chase places where people do evil things, then you have to you have to look that in the face as best you can. What I find most intriguing, perhaps, though, is that you you came through that realization and then also determined that this was, and you've used the term, a genuine calling Mm. for fact reporting, for for full reporting. What was it that made you feel that, you know, this story needs to be told and this is what I'm going to do? Well, I thought for one thing, I looked at it and thought, you know what, there's nothing special about journalists, police, paramedics, other people do this. Uh, They're making their own peace with it as best they can. Uh, but I realized that journalism, journalism gets a bad press and I, and I'd stumbled into journalism. I didn't have any great exalted view of what journalism was, but I started to realize that, that people actually do need information, particularly when things are dreadful, that they need, they need clear, unsentimental, useful information and that someone has to deliver that and that that might take a bit of pummeling on the person doing that. But who am I to weep if there are others doing their own professional duties and those things under much more difficult circumstances 
you know, I hate the phrase harden up, but you realize that this is your calling and it is an important job and you have to, you owe it to people to, to do it right and to not manipulate or to, you know, to beat up stories or to, you know, to make people's pain worse. Uh, you, you owe all kinds of things to other people and that's the job, that's the calling. And, I, and I, it deepened in me a sense that this was actually not just an entertaining way to make a living, but an actual, an actual calling. Did some of that, though, inform perhaps why, and it's quite surprising when reading in the book, you are hard on yourself about how you reported the Port Arthur massacre in that you felt the curtain start to drop at one point when you became a little bit emotional or you feel you became particularly emotional in your report back, your, your life Yes, I, I did. And part of it was is that right from the first moments of Port Arthur when, when the word was getting out that some guy had gone and shot a lot of people, People were saying, God, why? Why do you do that? Why? Why? You know, there's a kind of almost bigger than the who question is why. And this question sat in the back of my head all the time. I was, we were trying to find out who this guy was. He was still shooting when we first got in there. Um, but uh, And so in the back of your head goes this why. What's the motivation? What's the purpose? Um, while you're trying to find out the, the what and the how. And by the time, again, we, 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 we were taken through, the police took us through Port Arthur uh, in a sort of guided tour, if you like, so that we could get an understanding of what had happened so that we could report it to the country on that afternoon. Uh, Mark Bryant had only just been caught in, the, in a few, few hours before. And again, there you saw the, particularly the evidence of the death of, um, of uh, Madeline and Alana Mikak. And... Uh, the little children. There was plenty of other evidence that people had been killed, but the but the killing of children is just one of those things. And and that was the point where I realised there's no why to this. There cannot be, not even in in the most warped interior justification someone might try to make. You, there is no why to to killing small children. Um, and so I I tried to invest that answer, I suppose, it's almost a philosophical um, question into the story. You know, people, people, a lot of police reporters went down to cover this thing, but I, I said you could almost have sent your religious affairs reporter down there. It's so profound when you have people killing innocent people down to children, just at random, that it raises questions that are so profound. So, uh, And so I, I didn't just simply do a here's what happened, then here's what happened next type of story. Uh, I tried to, I tried to grab, grab it that question which I felt everyone was trying to answer. You know, why did he do it? Um, and I concluded there is no why, basically. You know, there, there are no reasons for this. Um, and, and I got quite emotional about that. When, as I say, there's only tw two, two times in my life I've wept while, while writing a script, and that was, that was one of them. But it was an awful day. Mm. Mm. Moving on to something a bit, bit lighter, perhaps. Yeah, why not? <laughs> It's not all doom and gloom. Um, tell me about bribing your way to Moscow in 1993 and how you quickly learned that the word coffee didn't mean coffee. Absolutely. So we, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union was not a simple sort of one moment fall. It, it you know, the, the echoes of that ran through with all kinds of political tensions and stuff in the new uh, reduced Russia. And uh, there was in 1993 an attempt by um, some uh, members of the Duma to claim that they were the, the government and they took over the parliament. And, uh, and Yeltsin, Boris Yeltsin, uh, 
had to oppose them and ultimately it came to rolling the tanks out onto the streets and blowing the hell out of the parliament. It was very dramatic scenes. And I was in London at the time. We were trying to figure out how the hell we could get into Russia to cover this because they weren't giving out visas. And we'd worked out a plan where you could get a temporary visa if you could get an ongoing flight and we'd worked out the scam where you could we booked tickets off to Alaska to try to get these temporary visas. We're trying to anything to, to get in there. But we so we managed to get as far as Moscow Airport. And um where we were confronted by the inevitable sort of Russian <laughs> security guys. And they didn't believe us sort of flying onto, onto Alaska story for one moment. And, and, you know, it was one of those things where it's fairly obvious we were going to, unless we came up with something, get uh, put back on the next plane back to London. And, and that was a moment where we thought, well, uh, we have to offer a bribe, but it's always a dangerous moment to offer a bribe because, uh, for one thing, they go, are you trying to bribe me? They look upset and indignant. And if nothing else, the price of the bribe's just gone up, gone up tenfold. <laughs> um, or alternatively, you could find yourself, you know, sitting in a, in a Russian cell for a fair bit of time for, you know, corrupting Russian officials, which would be quite laughable, but possible. And, um, the, uh, the great New Zealand reporter that I was with, a guy called Cameron Bennett, has had this technique of saying, are there, uh, you know, if there are any administrative expenses that uh, you'd like us to cover, oh, which lovely. is brilliant because it just gives you enough of an out. If they say, are you bribing? Oh, no, 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 of course not. Um, and, of course, there were administrative expenses that they would like to have covered. So <laughs> sums of money were handed over and we got in and we turn up there and there's no taxis. There's one taxi trying to get out of the place. And I thought, this is weird. We jump on this car. We pile into the car before he can really resist. And we're driving, it's cold, we're driving through uh, the streets of Moscow and he's getting increasingly agitated and shouting at us in Russian and we're going, just keep going, keep going. And we keep mentioning the name of this hotel we want to get to downtown. And he keeps on just shouting at us, coffee, coffee, coffee. And we're going, you don't care about coffee, just keep going, keep going. He stops the car at one stage, winds down the window and we listen and this cold air is coming in after midnight. And, uh, and it sounds like a train marshalling yard or something. There's a lot of engineering sounds going on. And we go, no, yeah, keep going, keep going, keep going. And he drives on for another little while and then he stops again. He winds down the window. He's, he's getting quite agitated and, uh, kept on yelling coffee and, and the train station or whatever still going sounds a bit louder. And then <laughs> the sound though in the back says, that's bloody gunfire. <laughs> and the train station was just heavy caliber machine guns, just in a constant <laughs> sound of. <laughs> Like this engineering, so we start, uh, we suddenly go, oh shit, it is, and suddenly the taxi driver makes a lot more sense, and um, and again the soundos are always the smartest guys in the car, and he goes <laughs> curfew, curfew, he's saying curfew, oh, God. and then he wasn't saying coffee, he was saying curfew. They brought down a curfew while we were in flight, so the mere fact that we we're on the road made us a potential target. Um, but what could we do? We 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 were mollified him somewhat and and urged him to keep going and we we did get in there and uh they'd started blazing away that we you know literally that we, we crossed one of the bridges across the moscow river and you could see the uh parliament building in flames at the top part of it in flames and um and made that but it was one of those almost keystone cops moments where of total lost in translation <laughs> <laughs> yeah one of your great joys in the book seems to be the moment you got to see Nelson Mandela announce yeah. that they were free. Yeah. The, the, the democratic election had come through, they'd won the vote, and it held. 
Mm. What was that like for you? Because you not only have to experience it as, as a man who, who believes in democracy, but mm. then you also have to maintain a level of professional courtesy to report it simultaneously. Yes. Well, that's true. And, and South African politics had been a huge issue for me since my childhood because I grew up in New Zealand and the whole issue of um, of playing rugby against the Springboks, playing sport against uh, uh, South Africa was an enormous issue that we studied in school. We all There were huge fights right through my teenage years about what was the proper place to have to view South Africa. So here I was that had the vote on uh, April, I think it was the 27th, 26th, 27th, can't remember now, and, and then they had to go and count the votes. So several days had passed and they wanted to get the count right and there was a sort of hiatus period. And meanwhile, I'd managed to scam entry through a very good local fixer into the uh, sort of celebration um, that the ANC, Mandela's party, had organized in this hotel in downtown Johannesburg. So all these great heroes of the struggle movement were in there and they'd turn up every night and they'd wonder if they're going to make an announcement this night or not, maybe. So Mandela was reported was sick with the flu, so no one even knew if he was going to turn up or anything. And then we were there one evening and without any warning, there was nothing, nothing, no advance notice at all. He walked out, they had a band playing there to entertain people and the music suddenly drummer suddenly stutters and stops and the, and everyone looks up at the stage to see what's going on. And Mandela had simply walked out from the back, picking his way across the, you know, you know, the lead guitarist chords and so on, and went up to the microphone and with a very stern face said, um, I want to tell you that I've just received, in the last 20 minutes, I've received a call from the electoral commission officer or whatever. And then he proceeded to... Um, declare the the votes by region or whatever it was, the electoral system, um, until he'd got down through this thing, all of it, as if he was announcing the death of every close member of his family. His face was very stern, his voice was very stern. And and he got down, he said, the final count is uh, uh, for the ANC, 62.5% of the vote or something. And and everyone knew that it was it was official, it was declared, the ANC had won the election, the election had happened, and, and white rule had ended and had gone forever. In fact, the man standing there was going to be the new president. And his face, which had been so stern, suddenly, well, he, he, he kept stern, he, but, he, but he, he ended it with, now we know the true, meanings, the true meaning of the words, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. And those were the words at the end of Martin Luther King's speech, the I Have a Dream speech. And he was bringing together those powerful words of the Negro spiritual, and um, and he was declaring it and he was meaning it. And you knew that in that moment, the history, as I say, almost a biblical moment of, of a slavery, a slave state effectively, the chains being broken at that moment. And suddenly his face broke into this huge, famous, you know, Mandela smile. And he, and he, he, he raised his hand up in a fist and... And the the place was, people were, it was like it was like a punk rock concert. They were pogoing. They were jumping up and down. They were screaming. There were these um, old men who'd been who'd sacrificed in the struggle. Were just leaping and hugging each other, and women doing that that high pitch you sort of thing. And he stayed and he danced for a moment or two uh, as the band struck up again, and then he just gave a wave and he and he went away out the back again. But that, that was the moment that uh, the last thoroughly racist legal state ended, and it was right there. 
wonderful moment. Mm. It must have been an extraordinary experience to be a part of it and, and, and to hold that in and, and share it with others oh, as well. splendid. And, and the funny thing was I went up to my room to grab some stuff because we had to get out and feed it and I could hear this sort of funny noise in my room up on the 27th floor or whatever and it seemed to be coming from the window and I thought it sounded like an air conditioning that was going strange. And the windows way up there, believe it or not, in this place, you could actually open the windows. And so I swung open the window and looked down on the street. And there was, you, in, in the darkness, there was a crowd, half a million people of black heads in the street making this enormous roar like a sea in full, in full storm. They'd come to the hotel and, and, it was just this extraordinary explosion. They'd heard the word had got out. And so we had to get out to go and file our story from somewhere else. And we went out into this crowd of people, the security people at the hotel were appalled that we'd even think about going out into this thing. And we said, well, we've got to file the story. And I have a feeling they'll be kind of friendly, but who knows? You know, we're white faces. Maybe it's time to get some revenge or something. But in fact, the mood was incredibly... There was some hostility. There was a bit of anger against Butalazi, the, the Zulu leader, and there were burning effigies of him and so on. But the general mood, we walked out into these things, and, and honestly, that sort of absolutely untrammeled, unalloyed joy being held by a mass of people is one of those experiences which just goes through every cell in you and feels, and you just feel, it's a, a, a communal moment of complete joy of that profundity is rare in history. It's wonderful to be part of it. Getting the story out, you mentioned there, is, is, can be a challenge. And you've had quite a few of them. And some of them read like almost near Hollywood moments. And I'm thinking more when um, a tape was handed to poor old Leon Gettler to, <laughs> to try and get through a crowd and returned, I think, a couple of hours later, all beaten up and yeah, The next day, yeah. So th- this was uh, Leon Gettler is a, still works in, in Melbourne as a journalist. He was working then for what was the, uh, the Sun News Pictorial, later the Herald Sun. Um, or is it the Sun? Yeah, the Herald Sun, Herald in, Sun in the Melbourne yeah. paper. And uh, so he and I had sort of hooked up to cover that this is the Fiji coup. And at one stage there was this appalling act of violence where a mob came crashing down they just released the previous night the prime minister and he'd called his supporters to gather in a park and at the allotted time uh we'd narrowly missed narrowly escaped being pummeled by this mob leon and i and and this mob suddenly broke into a run and just started wailing into these people in the park who were just ordinary people who turned up hoping that they were going to get their government back and a photographer was taking pictures and turned to leon and said gave him a roll of film as it was and said, take these to the a safe house that they were using as a dark room to get the pictures. And Leon, without hesitation, went out into the mob and was bloody nearly killed. He was, he was pummeled with pieces of concrete, he turned up um, the next day, covered in blood with his head very roughly stitched up. And, um, and is, that is was... there a shared insanity between, do you think, the foreign correspondents? Like they're, they're, obviously there's a switch that you all can turn on and turn off to go into these places because you don't, you don't do it, and I've heard you say that you're not interested in suicide journalism, no. but you take calculated risks and it does take a very certain type of person to do this, to, well, to believe I mean, you in do, the story. And, and my feeling of that was I thought Leon was nuts to go out <laughs> and, it, and, and he didn't ask me to come with him. Um, and I would have really struggled with the idea of going with. I would, I would, you know, I would have tried to talk him out of it because I felt that that mob was was not going to, uh, you know, make it easy. But you're making decisions. You know, you, the, often the greatest dread you have 
is when you're making a decision to go to some place you know is really, really dangerous. And the greatest fear, the sort of the bowel-watering fear that you have is when you're making a decision to do something which is likely to be deadly or difficult, when you still have the power of decision in you. Uh, and this is why I think literature is full of these moments from the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, Jesus could have fled. Um, you know, well, it resonates down through the ages that he knows there's going to be an unhappy ending, but he chooses that that path as well. If you look at the the great um, uh, Henry V, I think it is the the Shakespeare Henry V, where um, where he he the night before the Battle of Agincourt, where he goes, a li- everyone got a little bit of Harry in the night, and he's he's going around, he's talking to these soldiers and stiffening their resolve ahead of a battle, and then the famous speech, of course, it's Shakespeare's speech, um, you know, those who stand with me today will will truly be my brothers, the band of brothers speech, and so on. Um, it's once. The bugle plays. Once the first shot is fired, the bomb goes off, whatever it is that's going on, there's no time, I find, for fear in a conventional sense of fear. There's a very heightened level of of um, an acute sense of everything about you. Uh, time gets a kind of a fluid liquid sense. It's, is it standing still? Is it still moving? It's kind of very hard to describe. I think we have within us a very deep, every human being has within them a very deep um, capacity, you know, that has an evolutionary purpose to survive and think under times of great stress. And you, you draw on that. Later on, you can have a reaction to it. But I think that's, I've often wondered about why did the soldiers leap out of the trenches into the withering fire? And I think part of it is because it was better to get moving than to sit there waiting to go. And when the whistle blows and you get a chance to it, they'd go out there, even though they knew their prospects were grim as hell. The, the waiting to go is unendurable. And the moment that it comes, other things kick into, kick into being. That, that pure animal that you are comes into play. Yes, and I suppose it's very similar to having talked to quite a few special forces officers in my time as well. They're, they're, they're tightly wound machines. They've got all this specialist training and that's what they're best at. So the waiting is the difficulty because yeah. once it starts and kicks off, well, they know exactly what they have to do. Yeah. And I suppose it's the same for the journalists, which is once it kicks off, there's the story to be told. Now, and I, I keep as a reference perhaps when your Humvees were attacked while you were out in Baghdad with CNN, you know, the, after you'd survived that experience, the first thing you did was turn to the camera and say, did you get it? Yes, yeah. <laughs> because of course, there's no point getting shot at unless you got, you know, there's a story there. You know, we were ambushed, we were in a complex ambush in Baghdad, uh, which we were very lucky to get out of. And, um, and of course, yeah, as it happened, the camera was rolling over the whole thing, which was, which was fairly useful. Um, yeah, it's, it, it is, uh, I often, I remember hearing about Dermot Burton, the, the, the Hawthorne, the great Hawthorne footballer that he was, he could have some pretty ordinary games in the home and away season. Uh, but, uh, but people would talk about it as being a f- the ultimate finals footballer. That when the real battle commences, you know, he's, he grows two feet taller. He's, you know, and I think that s- some of us, <laughs> I think that's me. I'm not good being bored, churning over ordinary bits of not very interesting journalism. But if there is, finals football to be played if if the game is going to be one in which you are everything that you've got is going to be in play then i'm alive and i'm awake and i'm ready to go and so i do think that uh, that's not unique to me i think a lot of people who are drawn to this actually 
want to live a life with those acute levels of experience and over time start to think as if you've got some skills and capacity to to work in that environment and survive it and lead others in that environment. So eventually you met your wife Mary mm. and you agreed to one last war. <laughs> That's true. And, and went off to Afghanistan, which was your final tour. Was there a level of sort of a, a, a sadness in you at all but it was going <laughs> well, to be your shameful last rat that i am in fact I, w- I went to afghanistan and then came back and immediately we got married so um it would have been awkward if i hadn't come back or if there'd been some other issue um but i always kind of thought well she had asked me at this stage because we had kids you know uh that that was enough i was in my 50s by that stage and uh and so i sort of agreed to it but i always kind of thought well i'll you know We'll settle down. Something else will come up. I'll talk around. <laughs> I will give up golf. Honest, honey. I will give up golf. And, um, the, you know, but she's held me to it. And, and I think that's fair. She's been wonderful to me. God knows she's been wonderful to me. And, uh, and I also think that the price that it does start to extract from you in terms of your mental health, um, and it's not depression for me. It's not things like that. It's, uh, you, you essentially become, in a sustain, you you become hyper alert all the time, uh, or too much of the time, and this is an experience. I, I I'm on the board of Soldier On. I have a keen interest in veterans' welfare, and I've spoken to endless endlessly to veterans and to others who've experienced these these the same similar sorts of things. And over time, you become essentially a unit that is wholly adapted to trouble, and you know, and becomes maladapted to ordinary life. And so it's those instincts for hyper alertness, readiness on the ball. It's taken me years to be able to sit in a restaurant near a window. Because if you're in the Middle East, if you're these sorts of places, when a bomb blast goes off, the first thing is all those shards of glass come in and you're going to be ripped to shreds. Uh, before anything else happens, you're going to be in deep trouble. So I won't sit near a window. And, and it's taken a real effort of will to sit near a window or to sit with my back to a door uh, in, a, in a public place. So, and I realize that those, that hyper alertness, that you can get quick to anger, which I think is the most disturbing element of it. And you don't want that around small kids. And this is one of the hard things. I think that sort of quick trigger anger thing, often over nonsensical things, is really symptomatic. It's not your personality, it's symptomatic. And I think it's a very strong signal that you need to address that quite quite clearly. Lots of people address it by drinking a bit more. Uh, I don't drink anymore. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that you have to, if you're going to have this, what I think has been a really wonderful, lucky life, there becomes a duty that you have to unpack that if I'm going to stay and do ordinary things, raise children, love my wife, live in a nice, you know, spiritual environment, if you like, of, of love and family and, and all those other little daily things, you have to just unpack, unlearn, take out all the stuff that you spent so many years packing in there and preparing yourself for war. You have to make sure you get it all back out of your, your backpack or otherwise you carry it around too much. 
you. It has been an absolute delight to talk to you today in regards to your life story. And it is a story of resilience and, and self-awareness and, ex and experiences that are just needed to be told. And it must be a great joy to be able to share that with your family now as well as so many others. So thank you so much for coming in. We could have talked for hours and hours. And James, hours. lovely to talk to you. You're a very good listener, James. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you, Hugh. And Hugh's book, Minefields, A Life in the News Game, is available in stores and online. You can also follow him on Twitter and follow us at ConversationsWW. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you very much for listening.